with me this morning to Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be paying particular attention to the end of the chapter, but I'd like to just read the first few verses and then verse 20. It's a, the entire chapter is, is uh, committed to the theme of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the difference that it makes and, uh, and the historical reality of the resurrection of Christ. So what, we're going to read the first uh, few verses. One through 11, and then we're going to go to 20 through 22, and then 54 through 56, through 58, sorry, at the end of the chapter. This is God's word. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though I, it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Then let's go to verse 20, where Paul's raising an issue that some are saying that the dead are not raised. And he responds, verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then let's go to verse 50. Now I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's ask the Lord to bless. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, we now um, open this word, your word, breathed out by your spirit, and for our blessing, our edification our growth in faith. Lord, we pray you would um, 
By your spirit, give us ears to hear it and to receive it and to see afresh the wonder of Jesus and what it means to be a Christian. We pray it in his name. Amen. As uh, most of you know, uh, Joanne's uh, mother, Frances, passed away almost two weeks ago now. The funeral was um, a week ago this past Friday. Uh, I was uh, sort of uh, late notice but asked to officiate the service because her pastor uh, was uh, recovering from COVID. And uh, pastors get certain, um, I don't know, access at funerals, uh, just certain things we see that others don't see. For instance, um, when um, the family had all taken a seat in the other room, I was left there with the casket and um, mom lying there. And the, uh, and the two funeral uh, attendants came then to uh, close, close the casket before they, they brought it into uh, the other room. And the mom's body, of course, was wrapped in the stillness of death. And I was standing there as they closed the, the casket, and, and the thought occurred to me, um, well, we've come now to the nub of the matter. Uh, is, is the gospel true, or isn't it? Will we actually see mom again, or will her body simply go to the, into the ground and decay, uh, never to be seen, and never to, be, to rise again? You see, one of the, one of the things that is... Um, Remarkable about the Christian faith is it really is an all-or-nothing issue. Uh, there's no halfway measures. You can't, um, you can't sort of, you know, think that it's true and sort of maybe think it's not. Or um, it's all or nothing. E- either we do have great reasons for invincible hope in the face of death, or or we don't have any reasons at all. And it's one or the other, and it all hangs on the veracity of the things that happened to Jesus Christ, the historical truthfulness, factualness of the things that happened to Jesus. That's why Paul begins this discussion in chapter 15 by saying, brothers, I want to let you know what I also received. And then he tells us the gospel, and the gospel is the the historical things that happened to Jesus. That's the gospel. And either those things are true or they're not true. Either they happened or they didn't happen. Either he was actually, in truth, the son of God, born of a virgin, or he wasn't, and we're, we're just deluded. Either he really did die an atoning death, where bearing our sin, he accomplished our uh, justification, he, he, he paid for our sin, turned aside the wrath of God. Either he actually did that on the cross, or he did not do that, and we are still in our sin. Paul will say that in, the, in the chapter 15 here as well. And again, either he rose from the grave victorious over sin and death or hell, or he did not rise again from the grave, and we are of all men most miserable. Those are the facts of the matter. As J. Gresham Machen so powerfully argued a hundred years ago now against the modernists, the liberals of the day, who were saying that uh, ideas like uh, incarnation and the miracles and the resurrection of the, the bodily, physical, physical resurrection of Jesus, that those were uh, theories that could be interpreted in different ways. Machen said, no, either they happened or they didn't happen. They're either historical facts upon which hangs the destiny of all creation and the hope of all God's children, or they are, in fact, fantasies. And vanity, then, is the final word written over all things. 
And that's the truth for our lives as well. There's only two words, ultimately, that can be written over your life. And the words are either vanity or victory. Those are the only two ultimate epithets that, that can be written over our life. It's all meaningless or we have victory in Jesus Christ. And that's why I love verse 20 where Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And that fact forms the foundation, the essence of the gospel in which we, are, we stand and by which we are being saved. And those facts ripple then through time and through eternity with the gift of unshakable hope in the face of death. This is a hope that we can lean on and rest in as we grieve the loss of loved ones. And, and this is a hope that we can stand firm in as we go through the trials and storms of this life. Yes, death is real. And we will experience it unless Jesus Christ returns. But Christ has been raised, and that makes all the difference. In our text this morning, we'll be looking at verse, specifically verse um, 54 through the end of the chapter, 54 through 58. And notice first a declaration, a declaration, and then derision, and then a directive. First, the declaration, death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Uh, Paul declares um, a victory, and a victory of the most astonishing kind, a victory over, over death. It's not, it's not um, a common idea, uh, but, but the imagery is, is very vivid. Um, swallowed up, Paul here is, is quoting from uh, the, uh, the prophet Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 25, where uh, speaking of the one who was to come, the Messiah, it says he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces, for the Lord has spoken. That was the promise. And Paul is saying uh, that is what has happened in Jesus Christ. The word swallow is... Uh, it's meant to convey the idea of completely overwhelming. Jesus didn't take a bite out of death. He swallowed it. It's gone. Completely removed, overwhelmed. We have an image of uh, what Christ did in the uh, instance of the Israelites at the Red Sea. Remember the, the story there, boys and girls, when um, God, Moses led Israel out of Egypt and they came to the Red Sea and it seemed like they were trapped. And remember, boys and girls, uh, Pharaoh's army was pursuing them and pursuing them with all the might of the, most, uh, the, the greatest military power in the world. And Israel had nothing. They were helpless completely. And death seemed about ready to swallow them up. But God intervenes. And he opens a path through the Red Sea and the Israelites walk through and the uh, the army of Pharaoh comes thundering into the, uh, the sea after them. But as soon as the Israelites are out of the sea and the, the army is still in the, in the middle of it, what happens? God brings the waters cascading down upon their head and death is swallowed up in victory. So in a moment, Pharaoh's army is gone, never to recover. And Israel is set free. 
Death is swallowed up in victory. And what God typified then in the deliverance of Israel from Egypt, he fulfilled and realized in the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As Jesus lay in his tomb, death seemed certain to have won. Um, Jesus seems to have been conquered. He's dead. He's buried three days. He lies there in the silence of the tomb. No blood is flowing through his veins. No heartbeat, no brain waves, no breath. Just a still, dead, cold corpse like every other dead body. That was the body of our Lord Jesus. But unknown to all but God, the great miracle of redemption and resurrection was already underway. Death was already defeated, it just didn't know it yet. You see, when Jesus cried out on that cross, it is finished, he was announcing his victory over sin and over death. Jesus died knowing that he had already defeated the power of death. He entered the grave having already conquered the grave. And so the miracle of Easter morning is just the necessary, inevitable result of Friday afternoon. I was listening to a, a lecture by R.C. Sproul this past week on the resurrection and he made the point that people will protest against Christianity and say, well, it can't be true. Uh, we all know that dead people don't come back to life. We have, his, we have scientific evidence of this. Dead people don't come back to life. Not if they're really and truly dead. Well, that's only, you would only say that because you don't understand what death is. You see, death isn't just a physical, physiological state Death is fundamentally the judgment of God upon sin. That's what death is. The soul that sins shall die. Death is God's response to man's sin. And if you understand that, that death is judgment upon sin, then the question you need to ask about Jesus is not how could he rise from the dead, but how could he not rise from the dead? What claim does death have on a perfectly innocent, righteous man? He died bearing our sin, yet he was sinless. Death has no hold on him, no claim on him. You see, this is, this is the, the, the glory of Easter. The, the wonder of Easter is, is not simply that Jesus is alive again, and we're happy about that. The wonder of Easter, Easter is the reason he's alive again. The reason he's alive again is because on the cross, the curse of sin was broken. The penalty of sin was paid. The power of death was broken. Death had been swallowed up in victory. That's what makes Easter such a magnificent celebration. What a morning for the history of the world. Just think of it, Jesus lying there in the darkness and the stillness and the cold of that tomb, his body completely dead. And the Holy Spirit then sometime in that morning comes and 
Like it brooded over the the darkness and the void in the beginning in order to create light and life. The Spirit of God comes into that tomb. And and, and like the dawn of creation speaks uh, over the dead body of Christ, breathes into his body. We're not told exactly um, how it happened, but by the power of God, the body of Christ is brought to new and glorious life. And the first beat of his glorified heart is the first beat then of a new age. As glorified blood began to course through resurrected veins and and begins to stir resurrected muscles, the dawn of a new age, a new creation broke upon this world. It's the beginning of making everything new. Now, of course, we don't see all the glory of that at this moment. We're still living in the world as it is. We're still living in a world under the shadow of death. Paul makes clear that, that the saying will come to its full fruition when Christ returns. Then, right, death will be fully swallowed up. Then uh, the dead will be raised imperishable. So now we still face the reality of it. We still, um, we still experience the loss, the heartache of death. But Paul makes perfectly clear that because Christ is already a victor as the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep, we can celebrate our victory in him. And that brings then Paul to derision. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Uh, in our society today, today um, derision is... It's just deemed unseemly. You shouldn't mock people, right? When, when, you, when you score a victory, when a football player uh, scores a, a touchdown, uh, he can be flagged for mocking his opponent in an inappropriate way, which means basically any way at all. You're just not allowed to do that. But there is um, something righteous about deriding death. There's a righteous derision that's fully appropriate in this holy war, and, and, and Paul's doing that. If you want an example of that, just go to Psalm 2, where the Lord laughs at the nations and the kings as they uh, take counsel together to overthrow God's Messiah. The Lord sits in heaven and laughs, derides them. And Paul is doing exactly that to death. He's laughing at death. You see, he's, he's noted Christ's victory, and now he turns to death and says, Death, uh, where's yours? Because there is no victory for death. There's nothing but defeat for death in Jesus Christ. And, and Paul explains the reason for that very specifically in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And we just have to just put our theological hats on a moment so that we can understand this and and, and rejoice in it. The sting of death is sin. Boys and girls, um, I'm sure maybe you've seen a snake, maybe a little garter snake in the backyard. Uh, And you know that garter snakes are not, they're not dangerous. They don't don't have any venom. There's no poison. Now, if if you see a rattlesnake, okay, that's that's a different issue because rattlesnakes have venom. And they can, uh, they can kill you. Well, Paul is saying that sin is the venom of death, that produces death. Before there was sin in the world, there was, there was no death in the world. 
But sin enters the world through Adam and Eve, and death comes. The venom has been released, and it comes with great power. Uh, Who can escape death? No one escapes death. The mortality rate remains 100%. It is appointed under every man once to die and then to face the judgment. But the question is, why does sin produce death? Why is it that uh, what makes sin deadly? Why couldn't it just make you kind of sick? I just wound you. People will talk this way, right? Uh, I remember someone once saying um, that uh, the reason God hates divorce is because how painful it is. Well, divorce is undoubtedly painful. It's not the reason God hates divorce. There's um, a sinful divorce, right? A sinful divorce is, is, is uh, offensive to God because it's sinful, he doesn't hate addictions just because they entrap us. He hates, it. he hates addictions because they're part of our rebelling against him. He doesn't hate lies just because they're not helpful. So why does sin produce death? And the answer, Paul says, is because of the law. The power of sin is the law. It's law that makes the venom deadly. You see, sin kills because God has determined that a, that rebellion against him requires the penalty of death the soul that sins shall surely die it is it is the just and necessary response to rebellion against a holy righteous god so in some sense death is not our problem fundamentally death is not our problem sin is our problem and the law is our problem the character of god is our problem in that sense Because God is what he is in his holiness and righteousness who cannot look upon evil. Well, then evil has to be dealt with. And the sentence of the law says it will be dealt with by death. The soul that sins shall shall surely die. The reality of God uh, in his holiness demands it. But, but, that's... That's the gospel interjection, the the gospel conjunction. It invades the reality of sin and the power of death with glorious gospel truth. But, and Paul can't even finish the sentence, he's got to give thanks. Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory here is another wonderful word. It refers to um, both military and legal conquest. So it it means uh, victory on a battlefield and victory in a courtroom. You see, the victory of Christ over death involves, in a sense, both. It's an exercise of sovereign power against the devil and against his hosts. But it's also an exercise of divine justice against the reality of sin, the breaking of God's moral law. And Paul wants us to understand, you see, that death is defeated both on the battlefield and in the courtroom. Death has been robbed not only of its lethal ability, but its legal claim. So the the victory of Jesus Christ as he dies on the cross, bearing our sin, atoning for our sin, 
You see, it answers the devastating power of death and the legal claim behind the power of death. It gets to the root of the problem by satisfying the demands of the law, by paying the penalty of our sin, by imputing to us His own perfect righteousness, Jesus Christ has removed us from the power and the sting, the condemnation of the law. Justice now, you see, demands that we be set free. In, in the courtroom of divine justice, in the courtroom of heaven, the law of God, that good, holy, perfect, devastating law, has nothing to lay against us. Paul says in Romans 8, 2, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Jesus Christ from the law of sin and death. So when you drive by a cemetery and you see the reality that you will die, and you will, right, it's appointed to every man wants to die and then to face the judgment. You can drive by that cemetery rejoicing. Because you see, we're saved from the power and sting of death. And we're not, we're not saved only then by grace, we're saved by justice. The justice of God demands that we who've been have had our sin atoned. We who have had the righteousness of Christ given to us freely. The law demands that we be set free. And so we sing, oh, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, the very real cross of Jesus Christ, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. The victory of Christ, Paul wants us to see, is a victory over both the condemning power of the law and the sting of death. The venom is gone. In fact, now death becomes, for a child of God, a transition. It's the means that God uses to usher us into the presence of Christ. Charles Hodge says, if sin is pardoned, death is harmless. Just listen to that. If sin is pardoned, death is harmless. It can inflict no evil. It can inflict pain, but no harm, no evil. It becomes a mere transition from a lower to a higher state. And I, I, there, there are men, and I, there are men who want to insist that good men, I mean, uh, Christian men, who want to, don't want us to forget the 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 wrongness of death, that that's, that's not how it's supposed to be. And, and, and that is absolutely true. Every time uh, a loved one dies, we remember what's happened to this world, what the, the sinfulness of sin. I was, I was talking to my, my brother Randy, and he's, he's facing um, the reality of death in a, in a very real and personal way. He says it's it just what struck him is the sinfulness of sin, and that's absolutely true. But we also need to remember the victory of Christ over sin. And that, and that death then is a transition. So that, that the voice from heaven that John hears in Revelation chapter 14 says, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. One day our perishable bodies will, will be transformed right into the likeness of Jesus Christ. 
But, but the moment we die, we enter into the presence of the Lord. So Paul is able to say, in fact, is driven to say, I don't know what to choose. I, I, I'd like to keep working here with you, but boy, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And if you talk to saints who, who love the Lord Jesus and long for his appearing, um, they're having that same conversation. I know there's, there's things that the Lord has for me to do, but, but dying is gain. We do not love, so love our lives even unto death. We, we love Jesus, and, and that makes death then even. I remember John Piper giving a, a message once, uh, and I, some of you will remember this. My, my mind is not going to grab it right now. But he's talking about um, one of, the, uh, one of the, uh, the Puritans that was here in America, died young. And uh, the title of his message was, He Called Death Sweet Names. This young man who was dying of fever, missionary to the Indians, he called death sweet names. And one day, every vestige of death is going to be removed as our glorious bodies are raised. The mortals shall put on immortality. Isn't that beautiful? The perishable shall put on the imperishable. Christians, do you believe in the resurrection? We need to believe in what Christ has accomplished. And believing that will impact how we live then today. And that's how Paul wraps this up, a directive. Notice there's both a call here and a conviction. The call, therefore, therefore, because these things are true, because Christ has accomplished this, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's the call. The conviction is knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So be steadfast, be immovable. You see, the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all that that means for redemption and for, and for this world and the age to come, that reality is meant to serve as ballast in the ship of our life so that we can face the heartaches and storms of life. There will be things that happen to you that tip you sideways. Winds that will blow, that will, that will threaten to knock you off course or maybe even capsize you altogether. Loved ones will get sick or be lost in tragic illnesses or accidents. And it'll be devastating when it happens. Friends will betray you and it'll break your heart. Children will, uh, will, will, will wound you deeply or, or, or other loved ones. Our sins at times will overwhelm us. There will be times when we simply cannot make sense of what God is doing. And it'll hurt so deeply that, that you're tempted to give it up. You, doubts will come in. You'll wonder if it's really true. Is it really worth it? And you will be tempted to give it up and go with the flow. Enjoy this short little time that you have here. And you need, in those moments, you need ballast in, in the ship of your life. And, and the resurrection, the fact, the historical reality of what Jesus has accomplished is meant to be that ballast. To help us be steadfast, immovable. It, it, it reminds us that even if we lose everything that we love and have in this life, this life is just a shadow. It's fleeting. It's not the end. It's just the beginning. And if we have Jesus, ultimately nothing is lost. And if you do not have Jesus, well, everything is lost. No matter how good you might have it in this life, if you don't have Christ in truth, you will lose it all when you die, and you will lose it all forever. 
So Paul says, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord. He's not just calling us to stand firm in our faith. He's calling us to be engaged in the mission. The victory of Christ over death is meant to inspire us to the mission of Christ, to live this short life that we have here. And friends, it is so short. But to live it with purpose, to live it with intent, abounding in the work of the Lord. There's work for us to do. Like just challenge you in your homes, as a family, as a couple, as an, as an individual. How, how would the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what would that look like if, if you stood on that and looked at your life and, and, and looked at your, your resources and the time that you have, the gift that you have, and ask yourself, how could I abound in the work of the Lord? How could I bless other people in the name of Jesus? How could I bless my neighbors? How could I encourage my brothers and sisters in the faith? How could I live out of the reality of Christ's victory all year long? And this question for us to ask as a church, what would it look like if, if Harvest Church were to abound in the work of the Lord because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead? I think it would look like a lot of what's happening already. It would just, it would just be more intent, more purpose. It would look like moms and dads uh, discipling their children in the faith on purpose. Not just bring them to church and drop them off at school and, ho and hope somehow that it seeps in, but moms and dads talking to their children and praying with their children and uh, speaking the gospel to their children. It would look like foster care and adoptions and mercy ministries. It would look like investing heavily as a church in home and foreign missions. It would look like boldness and a zeal to proclaim Christ in our community. It would look like planting churches for the glory of God. It would look like people who know that they have everything to gain and nothing to lose as we live this short life on the basis of the resurrection. That because Christ is a victor, we are victors in him. So we know that our labor is not in vain. That's our, con that's our conviction. It's none of it's in vain. Not the littlest cup of cold water that we give, not the greatest sacrifice that we could make. Every Every sorrow that we bear in faith, Easter says it's not in vain. Every act of love and sacrifice in, in the name of Jesus Christ, Easter says it's not in vain. Everything that we give up for the cause of Christ, everything we endure for the mission of Christ, will be richly, richly rewarded in the new heaven and the new, and the new earth. None of it's in vain. God is no man's debtor. Paul prays for this in his prayer to the Ephesian church, chapter 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. The eyes of your heart may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? God wants us to realize the wonder of Christ's victory in the past assures a glorious destiny for you and I in the future. And we're to live then in this time confident of the things that have taken place, confident of all that it means, irrefutably means, and then living today, abounding, no, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> knowing that our work for Christ, our faith in Christ, none of it is in vain, but will be richly rewarded when he comes again. Let's, friends, live as though Easter were true. Amen? Let's pray. 
God in heaven, I thank you, Father, for such a glorious gospel. Oh, thank you for Jesus Christ, the man who, who bore our sin and our sorrows and made them his very own. And we thank you that this Christ, having accomplished our redemption on the cross, Lord, conquered over sin and death in the tomb. I thank you so much that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is was raised from the dead, not only for what it means for him, but what it means for the, the renewal of all things, and what it means for our personal redemption, that this changes everything. For if death is defeated, nothing is in vain as we live for Christ, and everything is to be gained as we follow after him. Oh, Father, I pray that uh, the, the, the fact of the resurrection would be ballast for our ship, would be a foundation on which we can stand, even in the heartaches of life, in the knowledge that you have loved us in Christ and you have rescued us in Christ. And one day we will roam the streets of heaven. One day we will be with our Lord Jesus. We pray that day would come soon. In his name we ask it, amen. Let's stand together and respond to the gospel and sing Choirs of New Jerusalem, Trinity Hymnal 271. Yeah.
God's people said, amen, amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord your God. And may the grace of the risen Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the mighty, preserving Holy Spirit be and abide with you all till Christ come again. Amen.